0: good morning again well today we are back in our exodus series Um, last week if you were here we had a guest preacher one of our dear friends Stephen Whitmer but and so we took a pause from this series but we're going back in and so we'll be in exodus chapter 16 this morning and we will be working our way through the entire chapter because really it's it's one whole message so to speak um but as we prepare ourselves for it i wanted to give you a little bit of uh catch up with what we've looked at so far in the text if you remember two weeks ago we looked at the second half of chapter 15 which is right after the song of moses and so at this point in the exodus event israel has come out from the midst of egypt the Lord has demonstrated his power and glory over all of the, man, uh, all of the men, beasts, and gods of Egypt. And Israel has crossed the Red Sea. And after they crossed the Red Sea, they uh, sung a song led by Moses and then followed by Miriam, demonstrating and proclaiming all that the Lord had done for them and glorifying his name and praising him for the salvation that he wrought for them. And then immediately, it seems, after this uh, song, they set out, and they're three days into the wilderness, and three days without water. They come to a place that has a body of water, most likely a river or maybe a large spring, and the water is bitter, or in other words, it's poisonous. It's, it's, It's not potable. They can't drink it. And they name the place Mara, because Mara means bitter. And they grumble and they complain and they question, what are we going to drink? And this is a, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Before crossing the Red Sea, they see uh, Pharaoh and his chariots approaching from the rear. And they cry to Moses saying, oh, did the Lord just bring us out here to kill us, that we might die here instead of in the land of Egypt? And the Lord reveals his power in pulling them through the Red Sea. And um, I spent considerable time last, uh, two weeks ago showing how the crossing of the Red Sea is a baptism for Israel. And so that theme is very important as we enter into chapter 16 as well. But the crossing of the Red Sea marks the new birth of Israel. And it is their baptism. And we, we know this from... The theme of baptism throughout the scriptures and also the Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 10 and so Israel is being baptized into Moses. Moses is this representative of the Mosaic Covenant which really is the catch-all for the law and so when when Moses is referenced in the New Testament he's primarily referenced as the law because the law came through Moses as a mediator and so Israel, again, baptized through the Red Sea. And baptism always marks identity. It always marks identity. We see this in the flood from Noah. One family survives the flood, the family of God. All of the earth is judged and destroyed. And so only the righteous survived, and they are marked as the people of God. And the same thing happens in the, flood, in the Red Sea the people of God pass through unscathed the enemies of God the wicked are crushed under the weight of the water it's judgment baptismal waters always represent judgment and so in the same way with our baptism our old selves are being judged and being buried with Christ and so we participate in the death of Christ and we're raised into the newness of life and so Israel experiences a new birth of sorts by crossing through the floodwaters, excuse me, the Red Sea. And so with that in mind, we saw two weeks ago that immediately afterwards they set out into the wilderness again, three days, they're thirsty, they're, gen- they're genuinely thirsty, they've had no water. And uh, we, can, we can safely assume that there were approximately 2 million people uh, that made up Israel this is because earlier in the text it says that there were 600,000 men not including women and children and so if we add uh, wives and children we're at roughly two, two million people and so this is a huge body of people navigating their way through the wilderness with the Lord leading them cloud by day and fire by night and they're understandably thirsty and the waters are not suitable and The Lord immediately heals the water at their complaining. And his disposition towards them is markedly different than his disposition towards them before their baptism. They grumble and complain before crossing the Red Sea. And the Lord, almost with indignance, says, Why are you crying to me? Why? Just move forward. Go in the way that I've prepared for you. But then after that Red Sea crossing, they grumble and complain again. And in verse 25 of chapter uh, 15, we see this. Moses cries to the Lord. It says, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So, immediately at the hearing of their complaining, the Lord doesn't chastise them. He, He doesn't rebuke them or show any sort of admonition he immediately provides relief. And then, after bringing relief to Israel, he says, look, this is going to be a test for you. Will you listen to me diligently? Will you do that which is right in my eyes rather than that which is right in your eyes? Will you trust in my provision? Because clearly I will provide. And so that's the background for what we're now going to see in chapter 16. Because again, Israel complains, and we will unpack that. And again, the Lord shows more of his nature towards his children. Because now he has a fatherly disposition towards them as they have been declared his children through the baptismal waters. And so, we will see in today's text, they set out from Elim, and they journey through the wilderness of Sin. On their way to Sinai, and so we have a whole chapter to work through. I'm just going to read the first third, so uh, of the chapter. And so, if you would, at the reading of God's word, stand with me, and I'll get us started through the text. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after. They had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you, by your word and spirit, would instruct us that, me wa- that we might walk rightly before you. Lord, may we see Israel as a, as a warning indeed that we would not walk in the patterns of unbelief but rather in full faith and confidence in you and in your word, may we walk accordingly in the obedience of faith. I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning, that we can comprehend and apprehend all that you're speaking to us as your people. And would we know that it is you who is Lord and that our grumbling truly, if it be in us, it's always against you. So would you heal us today and show us your marvelous mercy again and again. Be with us, teach us, and be magnified in us and through us. And I pray all this according to the covenant blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. So as we saw in the first portion of the text, quite immediately from leaving the place they settled, which was Elim, if you remember from two weeks ago, that was a a place of blessing and of confirmation because after the waters were healed, they came to Elim and there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And these numbers are important because there were 12 tribes of Israel. So each tribe had a spring of water and 70 palm trees. And as we'll see later, Moses establishes elders among the people and there are 70 elders. And so this is a little picture, a little foretaste of God providing for the people completely, fully. We never have lack. And I'll give you the same little illustration I shared last time. It reminds me of when the disciples wanted to drive off the people who were listening to the teachings of Christ, the 5,000. said, we don't have anything. And the Lord tests them and says, go and distribute the bread and the fish. And afterwards, they gathered the leftovers and there was... 12 baskets full of bread, full of fish. And each basket was a sign to the disciples that the Lord will always give you what you need and more, even more so. And it, so it was a test of will you trust in the provision and in the abundance that God always gives. And in the same way here. So they leave this place. They leave Elim, which is a, 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 a place of, of a reminder, so to speak, of provision and fulfillment and um, really a place that was for their rest and for their joy. They leave this place and they're traversing through the wilderness of Sin which is between Elim and Sinai. So they're on the way to Sinai which we know is where the Lord will strike uh, the commandments, the Ten Commandments and will give them to the people. And yet, verse 2, the whole congregation of the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, the whole congregation. So we see they've already forgotten. They've already forgotten the gracious provision of the Lord at Marah, and they have failed to diligently listen to the Lord their God as he instructed them. He, in giving them sweet water, he then says, this will be a test for you, and I'm gonna give you my commands and it's, it's simple, listen to me. The command was simple, diligently listen to me and do that which is right in my eyes, not in your own. And yet, so quickly, the congregation is stumbling into sin because they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Not just that, but instead of pleading their hunger before the Lord directly and in faith casting their cares onto Him, which is now their covenant right. They have been identified as the children of God, the very people of God, through their baptismal waters. And so now they have all the covenant blessings because they have been marked. They've been marked. And yet, they're not living in that identity rather than trusting the Lord and bringing their cares and concerns to Him, which is absolutely their covenantal right they grumble against moses and aaron and this is this is not good because truly in a backhanded fashion they're complaining about god we'll see this in verse seven through eight moses says and in the morning you shall see the glory of the lord because he has heard your grumble excuse me the lord's telling this to moses you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And then Moses says, for what are we that you grumble against us? In other words, you're directing your complaints at us again. But your problem is really that you don't trust the Lord. And this is a backhanded complaint against him. Earlier they said, they, they say in, uh, verses, in verse 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. So they're blaming him for their exodus. And they view the exodus in this negative light because of their circumstances. They've taken the very act of salvation that the Lord provides. And because they feel that their needs are not being met, they look at it now as if they are worse off than before. I think this is profound and telling because we tend to do this Ourselves, do we not we desire a thing and the Lord graciously provides us a thing but then when it doesn't seem to pl- uh, happen as we figured it might or when things don't go according to our plans we then put all the blame on the one who so graciously provided I've seen uh, I mean I just know men and marriage and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you have experienced this where one day you're so, gracious, you're so thankful that the Lord provided you a spouse. And then there's the other time where you're like, I don't know about this. I've never thought that. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, but it, this is the sort of thing we do in unbelief. We, we take and apprehend the gift of God so long as we're enjoying it. And as soon as we think it's not sufficient anymore or that something's off. No, it's no longer a gift. It's, it's now a curse. And this is what Israel's doing. They say, oh, would we have just died in Egypt? At least there we had pots of meat. Can, I mean, can you imagine this? They have just been rescued from the oppression of Egypt. And they've already, they're two months into their journey. The first month started with their exodus as the Lord said it would and they're two months in and they're already have forgotten the nature of salvation they have already begun to forget what the Lord has done and they think the meat of Egypt is better than the freedom of the desert And what happens after this? Well, as, I've, as we've established, this is the second time after the Red Sea crossing that Israel grumbles and complains. And so it seems then that the bitterness from the waters of Marah have indeed taken root in the hearts of the people, despite the Lord healing their water and promising to be their healer. That was his promise after the healing of the waters, he says, if you obey me and do what is right in my eyes and you give ear to my commandments and keep all my statutes, and if you listen to me, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. And so his declaration to them as, their cove- as his covenant children is that I heal you. I will provide you with the very best always. You will never have need even when it seems you do. And when you do, it's a test. It's a test. I am the Lord, your healer. He healed the waters of Marah, and he healed them of their own affliction by providing their needs, and yet they're acting as if none of that happened, and they have let, truly, they've let the bitterness seep in. So what does the Lord now do? He responds in a similar fashion. In a similar fashion, but it's, it's also different. He promises to fill their bellies. And this will again be a test for the people, whether they will walk in his law or not. But this time around, his promise of provision comes with admonition. If we compare to... The instance in chapter 15 at the waters of Marah, they grumble and complain against Moses. They do the same thing. They ask, what shall we drink? And Moses cries to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? He just immediately shows Moses a log. And I will, uh, I'll recommend you go and listen to that sermon if you want to know why the log. He shows Moses a log and Moses, immedi- Moses throws this into the water. He provides an immediate, an immediate solution. He immediately cures their condition without any instruction to Israel yet. So he sees their need. He says, here's my provision. I'll do it. Now, now that I've done it, this is what it looks like to live in the covenant. This is what it looks like to live in the covenant. This go around, he hears their complaining and says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. And so his disposition is slightly different. It's still fatherly. He still sees Israel as his covenant people. But there's, there's admonition here now because he's telling you He's telling them, look, I'm going to do this for you. I hear you. I will do it. But you should know now. This is a test. You should know now. This is a test. And so, see the the contrast. The Lord immediately provides at Mara and then speaks law. And this time around, the Lord warns of law and then brings his provision. Because the people are stubborn, and they need reminding. He, in effect, warns them about the provision he's going to give. You might be familiar with this in your own home as a parent. When a child continues continues to, do, to ask for the same thing over and over, and you had planned on giving it to them anyway, but you begin to be frustrated. And I would say S- some of that is reasonable. <laughs> There's reasonable frustration as a parent. And you say, look, I'm going to do this for you. But it's not because you're complaining in this way. And so if you continue to, dis- to uh, disbehave, you will be punished. But here is what you're asking for. I, I mean, this situation has ha- happened in my home and I would assume in yours as well. Because you're in the middle ground where the offense is not quite deserving of immediate punishment, and you still want your child to know that you hear them, and you're there to care for them, but the request is a little off. The request is from a place of unbelief and distrust, and this is what's happening with Israel. But what's worse is that Israel's grumbling is, is symptomatic of a much larger problem. And it's this. They still don't see the Lord for who he is or know him for what he has done. We see this in verses 6 and in 12. Verse 6 says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, they're they're doubting that what has taken place in the Exodus is even good at this moment. And the Lord's like, no, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. You will see that it was me who brought you out of there. You will see that it is my goodness, my kindness, and my love for you that rescued you. You will see it. And the same God who has rescued you from your oppressors is the same God who will provide for you. And again, in verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. They need to see his hand of salvation, and they need to know him As the Lord their God. Because right now they don't. They don't. And so this is why. After verse 6. 7 says in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. And in the evening too. In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. They need spiritual eyes to see. Because they are still blinded. By unbelief. Once we see see this, once we understand now as the readers of the text where Israel is at, they have been marked by the covenant. They belong to God. But it's clearly not any doing of their own because they're still walking in great unbelief. And, And once we realize that, the repeated failures of Israel in the wilderness become a little more clear, do they not? They're doubting whether their exodus was even a good thing. It's no surprise then that when Moses goes up on the mount and comes back down with the law, they were worshiping a golden cow and Aaron tells them this was the the God who saved you out of Egypt. I mean, how do you get there? because they never quite saw what the Lord had done they never comprehended it they did not have eyes to see just yet or ears to hear or a mind to know what the Lord their God had done for them and you might think that's a little unbelievable well remember this is two million people traveling in the wilderness this is a nation Think about your own heart and the corruption within and how we're so prone to wander ourselves. And now multiply that by two million. It's not difficult to comprehend why a nation goes awry. And yet they were without excuse. The Lord had instructed them so clearly and had demonstrated His power and His glory so clearly that they were without excuse So we can't miss this. The Lord has repeatedly revealed himself to Israel and has proven himself over and over again as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through his faithfulness, his mighty hand, his judgments against Egypt, Israel's baptism in the Red Sea, and in his merciful provision for all their needs, Israel has no excuse And as we mentioned before, not only are they blind to His goodness and grace, but they actually blame Him for their circumstances. They actually blame Him. It couldn't be quite worse for them spiritually. And so this now is a warning to us as the church. Sin is deceptive, and once bitterness takes root in our hearts, it festers... And produces the fruit of death this generation spoiler alert doesn't survive the wilderness sin produces death and sin is the fruit of unbelief and so we as heirs to the covenant promises in Christ we must see and know the God of our salvation Failure to do so will only prove that we were never children of the promises. And so, we don't work for it. It's been graciously supplied. The covenant has been struck in God alone. And we're going to tease that out here in a minute. We're simply recipients of His covenant promises in Christ. And yet, if we continually walk blind if we continually reject his commands, if we continually turn off our ears, it will simply be proof that we never belonged in the covenant. And so let this be a warning to us today that we must see and know God. Literally, everything depends on that. To see him for who he is and to know him. May we not grumble like Israel. Next, we see God's gracious provision with the bread and the meat. So despite Israel's utter contempt and ingratitude, what does the Lord do? He provides. He provides exactly what they ask for too. I'll read this section. In the evening, starting in verse 13, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was, on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it? That's literally what manna means. What is it?" For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat." This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is approximately two two liters. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack each of them gathered as much as he could eat and moses said to them let no one leave any of it over till the morning but they did not listen to moses some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stink and moses was angry with them morning by morning they gathered it each as much as he could eat but when the sun grew hot it melted this is quite amazing this is also the bread of heaven that Jesus speaks to the scribes later about in the Gospels. But what's amazing here is the Lord sees their need, and again, it's a genuine need, but their grumbling their grumbling was not a right response. It wasn't a faith-filled response. And yet they still had the need. And God, being the gracious Father that He is, He provides. And so in the evening, quail came, and in the morning, the manna came. And what's so amazing is that he says, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. And he's not saying just take take more than you should, but rather, really, be full. I am blessing you from the abundance of my storehouses. Take as much as you can. And when they do that, it actually ends up being the appropriate amount for their household because the one who couldn't gather as much didn't have as many in their home and the one who needed to fill many bellies did so. And so the Lord perfectly provides for His people. He perfectly provides. That's amazing. We we, we would be remiss to not understand how gracious this provision is. It's all from his abundance. He never lacks when he supplies our needs. And because he never lacks, we never lack. We truly have everything we need. The Lord loves Israel despite Israel. Why? 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 It's because of the covenant struck with Abraham. Let me explain. In Psalm 105, the psalmist is recounting the Exodus narrative. And he says this in verses 39 through 42. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm, but starting in verse 39. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night they asked and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance he opened the rock and water gushed out it flowed through the desert like a river for he tr- he remembered his holy promise and abraham his servant and so this wilderness provision of for israel and the establishment of them as a nation is not because of moses it's not because of the Mosaic Covenant. Even though they're baptized into that covenant, it's because of Abraham. He promised Abraham that his heirs would inherit the land, that he would become a nation, and that the whole world would be blessed by him. The covenants of God, they all build on one another. They don't, they don't nullify the previous covenant. and We have to remember this. It's easy to think that The Mosaic Covenant replaces everything that came before it, and that's not true. The Mosaic Covenant simply aims to affirm the Abrahamic Covenant and adds the law because of transgression. This is what Paul says in Galatians, and we'll read that too. And so this new covenant that Israel is entering into through Moses, again, signified by their baptism in the Red Sea, it it doesn't take away what was first promised to Abraham, which is this, I will be your God and the God of your children and your children's children, and your heirs will inherit the land. All of this love towards Israel is because of the covenant struck with Abraham. That's profound, and I'll explain why. Let's read Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. Paul's playing with grammar here. And to your offspring, who is Christ, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified, By God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place by an intermediary. But an intermediary implies more than one party, but God is one. So what does this mean? Well, first we see that the bringing of a newer covenant cannot annul the prior because that covenant was struck and it's bound to the parties. But notice what Paul says. God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If you remember at all the covenant of Abraham. He puts Abraham in a deep sleep after already promising to him his children would inherit the land and that he would be a blessing to the nations. He puts Abraham in a deep sleep and Abraham sees, but it's kind of beyond him, this fiery cauldron moving between the animals that he had split to set up for the covenant, which represents the presence of God. And so God walks through the covenant, basically the ingredients of the covenant. He walks through the covenant alone. And so it's bound on him. Abraham is only the recipient of the promises. It's not staked on Abraham's obedience, but rather staked completely on God. And so the Lord's gracious dealings with Israel are because of his promises to Abraham. He shows steadfast covenant love to Israel because he is consistent with himself and is therefore always faithful. In other words, God's faithfulness and his goodness and kindness toward us is because he is consistent in and of himself. He is bound to honor himself because he is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should change his mind. This is why Paul tells Timothy that if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Many take that to, under, to, un, to mean that if we're faithless in the covenant, somehow God's still going to do everything for us. No, he's saying even if we, you deny Christ and you're out of the covenant, God stays to his covenant promises because he's faithful to himself and he cannot deny himself. God can't deny himself, and that's what's good news. It's because he will not deny himself and the covenant is bound to him and him alone that he loves Israel despite Israel. And that is good news for you and I because Christ is the true offspring of Abraham and if we look to the promises in Christ, they're ours too. And so the Lord loves the church despite the church. He loves us despite us. We are simply recipients of covenant promises. We sometimes even confuse that faith is somehow a work that gets us into salvation. Faith is a gift. The spirit comes and regenerates and gives you the gift of faith that you then can prove your justification. It's all from God. It's all from God. He calls us to himself by his purposes. And this is why Israel is being held and kept in the wilderness and he has a fatherly care for them because of Abraham and because he's consistent with himself. He will not deny himself. And so he feeds Israel despite their faithless murmuring. Quail in the evening and manna in the morning. Day in and day out. Day in and day out. So at the start of the day and at the end of the day, Israel not only has the food that they need, but they have a reminder of God's care. They have a reminder of God's care. They can't escape it. His love for them is apparent day in and day out, day in and day out. And the same is true for us, church. But again, this giving of meat and bread was a test would Israel trust, would they trust that the care of the Lord was sufficient and that all their needs would be met, or would they toil in unbelief? Remember, the test was, are you going to collect more than you're supposed to? If you do, you're not trusting the Lord. And we see that it festered and stank and bred worms. So clearly their worry, they're even in the midst of his daily provision, their worry gets the best of them, again, because they collect more than they're supposed to. Again, may that be a warning to us. We don't have to scheme to receive the things that Christ has already provided for us. We don't have to position the pawns on the chessboard in order to accomplish what we think needs to happen. But we can relinquish our toiling and our striving in light of God and His Word. And say, I scheme no more. I just trust you. You said you'll do it. I believe you. So we must learn to take Christ at his word and trust in the provision he promises. In our last section, let me read this for us. Verses 22 through 36. I'll read this quickly. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day... He gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you In the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the 10th part of an ephah. So now we're in our last third of the chapter. This is the first occurrence of Sabbath in the scriptures. Sabbath means, the word means to cease or to rest. We usually associate the command to honor the Sabbath with the Ten Commandments, and it is one of the ten. But here's actually the first time we see it in the scriptures. Israel is instructed in the Sabbath by Moses after, after they apparently gathered twice as much manna on the sixth day and they told Moses about it. So he had already kind of instructed them, but then they gathered extra. Maybe they didn't even know why, but they gathered extra and they're like, Moses, what do we do with this? Did we mess up? And he institutes the Sabbath through the command of the Lord. And so he says, This, do all that you need to do on the sixth day, boil what you want to boil, bake what you want to bake, and set it aside for this day of rest. And here's why. Because it is God who institutes the Sabbath, it is also God who supplies for the Sabbath. Nothing prepared beforehand, spoiled, and Israel was yet again provided for. we should, we we would do well to remember that because it is God who institutes the sabbath it is also God who supplies for the sabbath and yet despite this overwhelming faithfulness of God to his people some of them still went out on the sabbath to gather they did not listen to the lord their god they might have heard his instruction but they did not listen Again, parent-children illustration. To listen to the Lord our God means to take serious that which he commands and to live accordingly. How many of you give instruction to your children and you know they hear you, but they go off and do the exact opposite. They heard you, but they didn't listen to you. They didn't apprehend what you instructed them with and put it to heart, put it to their mind and put it to action. This sort of thing is sin, and it's negligence at best, and it's rebellion at worst. Israel did not listen. And so, what does the Lord say? This is no light matter. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? His admonition of Israel grows, it intensifies as their rebellion intensifies the more law given, the greater responsibility Israel has to obey it. The more we know, the more we're responsible for. This is just true of life because it's how God ordained the world. And so I think it would do us well to have briefly to look at the Sabbath and what does it mean for us on this side of the covenants? What does Sabbath mean on this side of Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation? There's much to learn from this text, but I'm going to be looking at some of the sum of it from the scriptures to help us out. Because I I think it would be um, a missed opportunity for us not to address this today. I believe personally that many Christians in modernity don't understand the Sabbath or whether in ignorance or just in um, negligence, they abuse the Sabbath. And God's Word is God's Word, so we would do well to to know it. The Sabbath is a corporate gift. It's not merely personal. The Sabbath is a corporate gift. It was given to Israel as the people. It's experienced, certainly, personally. There is a personal benefit to the Sabbath, but it is a corporate gift meant to be experienced collectively. This is just true even considering the nature of God. When God rests on the seventh day of creation, he rests as the Trinitarian community. He is resting in and of himself. He has has eternally been the triune God who exists in the community of the three persons of the Godhead. So even his Sabbath was communal. Also, the Sabbath is for worshipful rest, not mindless distractions. This is what is meant by a solemn or a holy rest. This is something different. There's something different about the Sabbath than just taking a vacation or a day off work. They're different. And they have to be different in how we respond to the command. God has marked a day. It means something. It's also a gift that can only be apprehended by faithful obedience. Okay, and here's what I mean. The early Christians moved the day to Sunday because Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and they were honoring his resurrection and the mark, so to speak, of new creation. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, because there were Pharisees and scribes accusing him of breaking the law. And that's quite a statement because only God gives Sabbath. So Jesus is here spilling the beans to these guys saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. We see this in Mark 2, 27, excuse me, Matthew 12, 8. And so in light of this, the early church moved the day from Saturday to Sunday in honor of the Lord's resurrection. And as the Lord of the Sabbath, it's Christ who defines the Sabbath by his word, not us. And so this is important. Sabbath, he says in Mark 2, 27, Jesus says Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. It's true. This is a gift for us. But we do not have the right as the recipients of the gift to say, well, it was given to me, so therefore I do what I want with it. That's not how it goes. We either accept the gift on Christ's terms Or we will be found to be in disobedience this is obvious from verse 28 when he the Lord says to the people how long will you refuse my commandments and my laws it was a gift to them and yet they thought they could do what they wanted with it and he says no you cannot refuse my ways so then the question for us is will we trust the Lord by actually resting in Him according to His design? Or will we continue to toil anxiously, believing that somehow we're wiser than God and that we can accomplish all our duties despite His commandments? That's that's really the question for us. Will we receive the command as the gift that it is or will we think God is somehow movable and that... I'm now the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'll define what rest looks like. And I also want to clarify that there will be times in the life of every believer where you have a duty to fulfill, and it falls on the Sabbath. And we are free in Christ to fulfill that duty. Luke fourteen five. Also, we are called to good works, even on the Sabbath, in the same way that Christ healed on the Sabbath. Okay. This is why I'm preaching. I don't view this as work not appropriate for the Sabbath. This is a good work because I get the the privilege to help feed the people of God. And so this is rest for me even though I'm laboring something. Also, as another point, God didn't stop being God on the 7th day while he rested. Think about that. The universe was still being upheld by the power of his word, and yet he was resting. So rest as the gift of God looks different than what we think rest looks like. But Jesus also says, look, there will be duties to fulfill. If you have an ox in a ditch, you have every right to go get it out. But but this is where I think we misunderstand Jesus. We mustn't be stubborn enough to believe that we always have oxen in ditches. Not everything is an ox in the ditch. We would be very wise to learn to say no to some things in order to obey the Lord in faith and to actually enjoy the rest that the Sabbath provides. It's a gracious gift to us. It's not ours to control. It's not ours to redefine. It's ours to enjoy. And so we take God at his word We gather corporately because it's a corporate gift. This was what was happening in Jesus' time. They were meeting in the synagogues to read from the law. And so we do this corporately. We enjoy the presence of the Lord together. And we are filled with true rest that carries us throughout the week as the covenant promises are renewed to us and as we meditate on these things. And this is suggestion, not law. But some of the things that I'm trying to establish in my home are that we say no to some things on Sundays now. So, for instance, we try to do as much as we can on Saturday. It doesn't always work, but we try to do as much as we can on Saturday to prepare for Sunday. Hopefully, we get all the house cleaned and the dishes done and the grocery shopping accomplished so that we're not doing that on Sunday. Also, I would recommend... For men who are leading your home, plan things that are Godward for your family. Perhaps it's reading a particular devotion or singing hymns or going and hiking in the woods to experience God in a way and and show your children, like, look at what the Lord has done. And so all those things can be done in this Godward sense where you enjoy the gifts of the Creator. And you don't just, well... This, this, this thing is, if I don't get it done on Sunday, I won't get it done any other time of the week. It's like, well, we would be wise to rearrange ourselves to honor God rightly. And so, in addition to the Sabbath, the Lord commands that Israel take an omer of manna and he, to keep it in a jar throughout all their generations so that they would remember, so that they would remember his steadfast love and provision. Remembrance is important. It's through remembrance of God's glory and God's goodness that we will remain content in Christ and fight the temptation to grumble and complain. Remembrance stirs us up to fresh faith again and again because we will discover that the streams of His mercy never run dry. And so in conclusion... May we remember this. The Lord loves his covenant children. He provides for us. He cares for us. And he admonishes us accordingly because he wants us to see him and to know him. That he might be exalted in our hearts and in our midst. It's all for him. And because he's faithful to himself, he's faithful to us. Because he cannot deny himself... He will not deny us who are in Christ. And in response, as his covenant children, it's given to us to see him, to know him, to trust him and his word, to rest in him and in his provision, and to remember his glory and his goodness always. And so may we do it. Let's pray. Worthy are you, Lord creator of heaven and earth maker of the cosmos you have revealed yourself in glory in the salvation of your people the waters trembled before you and the deep rumbled as you moved the wall so that your people might pass through and their story is ours because you save a people from her enemies and you establish them in the goodness of your grace and provision. So may we walk accordingly, continue to move in our hearts and in our minds, would we be holy and blameless before you, receiving your grace appropriately and resting in all your promises towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you are good and that we are mere recipients of the covenant of grace. We praise you and uh, Lord, Please continue to stir us up by way of reminder that we might worship you as we ought. In Christ's name, I pray and ask all these things. Amen.